You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we're grateful that you have brought us together on this Lord's Day, and thank you for already feeding us in um, the preaching of your word and in the celebration of your holy mysteries, that you give yourself to us, Lord, in words and in bread and wine, um, Lord, to nourish us in grace. And I pray that you'll help us to see our identities as identities that are firmly rooted and grounded in you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're, we're pre- oh, come on in. The- we're pressing on in this series uh, on the Nicene Creed, um, morning coffee, and as I've reflected on our time together, and I, I think we only have um, one or two more weeks, so today I'm going to focus strictly on the relationship between the Father and the Son. Um, next week I'll probably um, reflect on the Holy Spirit, and, and then, and I'm not sure how much longer we have after that. But as I've, I've as I've reflected on this course. Of course, I'm thinking in school terms. This <laughs> class uh, together, uh, I've, I've thought that we're really trying to press into two dynamics. I'm thinking in terms of two dynamics. Number one is the relationship between the scriptures and the creeds themselves. What, what's the relationship with the one uh, to the other? And what I've been trying to sort of express is that the creeds themselves function in servant roles to the priority of Scripture. They're necessary. They're important. But they play a servant role uh, to the Bible in the sense that, and here are the, the sort of metaphors that we've been using, right? the, the, the driving metaphor, the, 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 the um, auto metaphor is they function like guardrails on the highway to keep us from crashing. Um, here, an agricultural metaphor would be they, they, um, they create a clean field in an open fertile field for the actual work of what theology is, which I'll return to in a second. Um, to use a battle metaphor, uh, the creeds function like shields in the sense that they, they defend off of um, bad roads or, or wrong turns that, um, that readers might take uh, or Christians might take in, in their reading of the Bible. So all those metaphors, the guardrail, the clearing of the field, um, the shield, then the, the, the sort of re- the, the flip question to that is, well, what's the positive work that's done theologically in the life of the church? And I am fully convinced that every church father that we might begin to list, and I've been sort of buried with these gentlemen for a while now in this class and some other uh, settings as well, every one of them, if we start with Irenaeus in the second century, if we move um, to Athanasius in, in, the, in the third and, and fourth century, if we think about St. Augustine, if we think about the Cappadocians um, in, the, in the east, Gregory of Nazianzus, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, all these, and I consider them luminaries in the life of the church. Every one of them, I believe, would say the primary role And the primary function and the primary activity of Christian theology and Christian reflection is the continued engagement with the Bible itself. The Bible. I mean, it's it's remarkable to think about um, the reverent 
and the very deep engagement that you find with the fathers when it comes to Holy Scripture. Why? And I think this is important because we're we're a Bible kind of place here at the Advent. We love the Bible. And I'm so glad. Um, why is this important? It's important because the fathers thought of Scripture in almost sacramental terms. Um, I, I'd be careful to maybe release the clutch completely on that theological category, but it wouldn't take much for me to release that clutch, to think of Scripture in terms of sacramental presence. Um, now, I'm, I'm off script, but you know we have 10 minutes left of the class, so we'll do whatever we want. Um, I, I uh, um, uh, um, t- tell my students, talk to my students about these things in this way, about the importance of coming face-to-face with the living Lord in the reading of the Holy Scriptures. Because I think if we were pressed into a corner on the far side of the 19th century, and I won't get into the details on this, but if we are pressed into a corner, I think we would understand that the Bible's problem and I'm using that term in scare quotes, but the Bible's problem is its, its cultural and historical distance. Um, and, and that's certainly understandable and conceivable. I mean, that makes sense to think of the Bible having a problem, namely um, cultural distance. Nobody here this morning was wrestling with whether or not to round the corners of their beard. I mean, at least not from a sort of legal standpoint. Um, or uh, think about the kind of ancient Near Eastern worldview that one might have, for example, with, um, with uh, sea gods and sea monsters. We're not thinking in those terms. Um, so there's all kinds of cultural distance that one might find with the Bible. And most Bible classes, even in places like where I teach, right, tend to treat the Bible's problem as its historical and cultural distance. I don't mean to mitigate those problems, but... That tends to be the primary issue. That's not the way the church fathers understood the scriptures as having that kind of problem. The, the, the Bible was the place where in the givenness of those words, you had a direct and live encounter mediated by the Son through the empowering and illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. You had an encounter with God. Where do we meet God? Where do we sacramentally come? And think about what a sacrament is. It's the use of physical means, something that's material, um, for the sake of conveying grace to the recipients who uh, participate in it. Scripture is that particular and unique vehicle by which God, and think about it in this terms, He gives Himself to His people in His Word. I, I, I need to be reminded of this, especially in my profession, because I, I do this for a living. I mean, this is, you know, I, I, that's how I hold my field. I'm just going to do it all the time. I've got a whole group of students that just started out on Thursday, and here we are, going to do some Hebrew verbs together. They're so excited. I mean, if you walk through that room, I mean, just the enthusiasm of, I mean, I was like, I had to walk around the class and say, you here? You here? Everybody here today? Um, so, I mean, I, I get it. I have to remind myself, why are we doing this? This is such hard and tedious work. Why are we doing it? I have to remind my students as well. Why? Because any giving of ourselves to um, uh, enlarging our tool bag for engaging the Scriptures is worth the effort because it's in the engagement with the Scriptures where God promises that He gives Himself to us in that particular encounter. The fathers of the church got it. 
That, that, that's what I really want to emphasize because we tend to think of the fathers as doing kind of abstract philosophical and theological reflections and they were brilliant. I mean, they were brilliant, and they were, they were schooled in both rhetorical and philosophical traditions that aided them in their theological work. I'm not downplaying that. But what got them excited, if I can use our language, if, if, if Augustine came here and we said, Augustine, what gets you excited? Augustine would say, you know what, I've, I've been thinking about this because I've been buried in the Psalms lately. Um, you know what gets me excited? Reading the Psalms as an interlocution between the Father and the Son. You know, Augustine spent 30 years working on his sermons and commentaries on the Psalms. 30 years. He says in Book 9 of the Confessions, um, and you'll remember, earlier he said he, try, he gave Isaiah a try and it didn't go very well. Remember that? Like, I tried Isaiah and that was hard. So, But where, where did he go? He went to the Psalms. And this is what Augustine says in Book 9 of, of the Confessions. Oh, how I learned to love the Lord in the language of the Psalter. I learned to love the Lord there. And from that beginning, this was before his baptism. So before his baptism, before he was ever appointed a bishop of Hippo, before all of that, Augustine gave himself to the Psalms for 30 years. So if we were to take the collective works of St. Augustine, who I think is one of the chief and key figures of the early church, if we take all of his collected works and put them on a shelf, I've seen them recently in our library at Beeson. If you look at that collection, the largest grouping are his sermons and his reflections, his narrations on, on the Psalms. Why? Because it's in the engagement with the Psalms where Augustine knew that he had a live encounter, both with himself engaging Christ and Christ's engagement with the Father. So that when Augustine was on his deathbed, you know what he asked for? He said, leave me alone with the penitential Psalms as I prepare to die. Why? Because that's the place where Jesus is met. The fathers understood that, and it's palpable when you when you engage their writings. The kind of revelry, maybe it's the right term, the kind of joy and enthusiasm that they have for the Scriptures. So that's the first thing of the relationship between Scripture and Creed. Creeds are important. They, they play a servant's role, but it's the Scriptures that are primary. And every church father that we would name and that's dear to our tradition would affirm that same instinct. Number one. The second thing that I think I wanted to talk about, kind of give a frame on this, is that the creeds themselves are the product of the Bible's own pressure. That's the other thing that we've been trying to press home here. The creeds themselves are the product of the Bible's own internal pressure. So think about the, think about the complicated facts that are on the ground when it comes to thinking through Trinitarian relations. I mean, these are difficult issues. So let, let me let me throw some of these out there to you, and then let you see how how difficult it was to get the instincts right on how to frame these matters that we all affirm. So here, here's some of them. Right, number one. I think again, the creed makes it very clear in Article One: We believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. So if we're going to talk about God. Um, and God and creation, the church fathers and the sort of instinct before them and the Bible itself understands this fundamental theological claim. That is that the creator and the creation itself must remain distinct. Must be distinct. Um, and, and, and this, by the way, has been, and again, this is beyond my pay grade, but this, this, this particular idea 
is constantly challenged, especially in Western philosophy, say, post-Spinoza in the 17th century. So it's a challenge to think about the distinction between the creator and his creation. It's distinct. So that's something we affirm. However we talk about God, we recognize that God and the world that God creates, and this is crucial, and this is, by the way, theologically controversial even today, but there is nothing outside of God that's necessary to constitute his being. He doesn't need anything outside of himself to make himself more full or more actualized in his divinity. Um, I think there was an old old uh, song that used to talk about you know, God creating Adam and Eve, you know, and, and the language that was used in the song was God God was lonely and he wanted he wanted fellowship. He wanted somebody to you know to interact with, as if there was some sort of social need in God's own eternal life that caused him and compelled him externally to create a world. That's if I can if I can lean into our sermon this morning, that's false teaching, right? That might sound good, it might make us feel real special, but there is nothing external to God's being that forced him by necessity to bring this world into being. When my dad, you know, uh, starts to wax philosophical. He's not here today. So I'm say, when he begins to sort of wax philosophical and theological, I can just hear him now. Mark, do you ever wonder why any of it even exists? You know, like, well, Dad, not, I don't know. Um, but I do think that we can say on some level um, that the reason why the world exists is because of God's own manifestation of his love and his grace and his kindness. The world did not have to be. Didn't have to be. It's an overflow of God's own being to allow this world to be. So we, we affirm that. I think this is important. The creator, a creature, a distinction. We affirm that. But at the same time, we also recognize that for the sake of our salvation, in other words, this is not just abstract theological reflection. Our souls are on the line in this conversation. Um, that it's crucial that however we talk about Jesus of Nazareth, we recognize in him perfect creatureliness, perfect humanity. Um, your salvation and my salvation depends on the perfect humanity of the Son of Jesus Christ. Um, we, we tend, I think, actually to have a, a too low a view of humanity. Um, God loves his creation and his world and, and he loves humanity and gives himself to humanity by taking on flesh and in perfected humanity, that's how we are redeemed. So I, I don't know, again, these things are sort of complex and they can be seem abstruse, but, but again, your salvation depends on the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, the second person of the Trinity, is a man right now. Because he's elevated our humanity into his humanity, and that's where you're safely secure. And when you go to the pearly gates, and St. Peter says, why should we let you in here? You say, because I'm already in him on the throne. That's not going to happen that way, I don't think, by the way. But um, I've been asked some of these questions in various evangelization moments around uh, Birmingham before. You know, uh, if God were to, have you been asked this? If God were to ask you today, why should I let you into my heaven? What would be your answer? You've probably heard this, Joy. Right? Uh, well, how, how, how would you answer that? And I, the answer to that is, I'm in Jesus. Bing! The door opens and you're in, right? Um, so your, your salvation depends on the perfect creatureliness of the Son. So if we talk here about a creator-creature distinction, 
And then we also affirm the necessity of perfect creatureliness in the, in, in, for the sake of our salvation. Then how do we think about these things in terms of Trinitarian relations? And here's some of the, 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 the bad turns that have been taken within the, the tradition. Arius comes onto the scene in the fourth century and he says, for, uh, for Jesus to be a perfect creature, that he must have been created. Pre-temporally, before the creation of the world, Arius would have affirmed without reservation that the second person of the, of, uh, well, the Logos, the Word, was the agent by which God created the world and the agent by which God redeemed the world. Arius would have affirmed that. But for our creatureliness to really, for his creatureliness to really be human, then he had to have been created at some pre-temporal moment. And you can see here, can't you? And this is something I want you to sort of think about. You can see here how on the surface that really makes a lot of sense. Now, I want you to, re- I mean, I know we look at these guys like Arius and later on Nestorius and some of these heretical figures, and because we've got a lot of time and distance from them, we can make our judgments. But putting yourself in the historical moment, I think we can have some sympathy for Arius' conclusions. That, that makes logical sense. In other words, the Son is still divine, but it has to be a kind of diminutive, created divinity so that we can be redeemed. And this goes back to those two points that I mentioned at the beginning of our, of our time together. The church fathers are thinking in terms of logic. They're thinking in terms of rationality. They're trying to give something that's comprehensive and whole. But their logic is driven by the total witness of the Bible itself. It's the Bible that's forcing the fathers to affirm both of those realities at the same time. Without any diminution the one over against the other. Um, if John 1, 1 is true, and these were the texts that I wanted to look at with you today, but because of time, we won't be able to do it. But if John 1, 1 is true, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was, and the Word was God without reservation, if that's true, if Philippians 2 is true, so that when Paul says um, that God handed over to him the name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and you begin to sniff something in Philippians 2. All of a sudden you hear Philippians 2 and you think, I've heard that before. The technical term in Bible scholarship these days is there's an echo of something going on here. What's the echo? Oh, I think I've heard that knee-bowing, tongue-confessing language before back in Isaiah 45 predicated and described about Yahweh Himself. So here Paul is taking something that's particular to Yahweh, Israel's God, the only God, and applying it without reservation and with no clearing of the throat to Jesus of Nazareth. It's a big deal. Here's the other one. I think that's a massive big deal and blows your hair back. And we won't go to it. This is your homework. 1 Corinthians 8.6 Think about them, the Jews, the Pharisees, asking Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And how did Jesus respond? As any good Jew would respond to this day with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone, or the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Go read 1 Corinthians 8.6 and see how Paul recalibrates the Jewish Shema. He brings the Father and the Son within the same frame of the language of the Shema to speak in such a way that the necessary conclusion is this. 
Whatever is said in the Shema about the Father has to be equally said about Jesus of Nazareth, his son. So that's why I think when you look, and I, I, I ripped it out of our, our um, worship, what do we call that thing, by the way? Worship leaflet? Service leaflet? Whatever that is. Um, when you look at it, and you think about it just in terms of material form, right? Here's the first article, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Then you see the third article. This is where we're going to get to the Holy Spirit and the Catholic Church. But did you notice where the bulk of the material is given, right? The second article is massive. Because this was the issue that was driving Trinitarian thought in the early church as it wrestled with the Bible. How do we come to terms? How do we articulate properly and biblically the supremacy and the priority of Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus creates all kinds of possibilities and problems that need to be sorted through. Because the creator-creature divide is certainly important. And perfect creatureliness is necessary for what? For our salvation, for the redemption of the world. So if those two are true, and the Bible presents Jesus in that way, then what language do we use to talk about him? This is the language. Begotten. Of his father before all worlds. Why begotten language? Because the Bible uses begotten language. I frankly don't think begotten language would even be in the creeds. In other words, I don't think Athanasius or Gregory of Nazianzus on their own would have gotten to begotten language as a, as a kind of metaphor that they would have wanted to use to describe Trinitarian relations. I think they realize that there's some hurdles here to understanding what begottenness means. How do we talk about someone being begotten, being generated, and yet not being made or created? My hunch is they'd have been happy not to have to wrestle with that. But you know why they had to? Because it's in the Bible, right? Again, it's the Bible that's begotten. John chapter 1, begotten language is, is central there. And one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds. You see, you and I are made. We're created. We come from something that's nothing. The Son is begotten in the sense that the divine essence itself is that which generates its own life in triune, interpersonal, and dynamic relations. The Son is eternally begotten by the Father. Not in a moment in time like I was begotten, like you were begotten, but He is eternally generated because God only generates God in that eternal procession. God of God, um, light of light. Um, this, this was, again, a favored metaphor that the church fathers used. Why? Because John 1 uses it. Um, as you have the source of light and the rays themselves, both of them share in the same essential properties of whatever light is. Light of light. Very God of very God. I love that language there. Why? Because what the, the Nicene Creed is saying here is, whatever terms, and this is very important to the church fathers of the 4th century, whatever terms you use to describe and to, and to modify and to talk about God and what it means for God to be God has to be said equally in no diminutive way, in no lesser divine way as if there's some sort of gradation of essential properties. All of it has to be said about Jesus of Nazareth as well. Very God, a very God. Begotten, a not made. And here is the term of all terms. Being of one substance with the Father. Um, homo usias. There it is, right? That's the technical term. And by the way, 
Um, well, I won't chase this rabbit. But, but, but it, was the, it was the best term. It was the best term on the table, right? Other terms could have been used, I think. But what's this term getting at? Whatever substantial terms we use to talk about the Father have to be used about the Son as well. So the creator-creature distinction is still preserved. He is the, he is the creator. He is, he is God um, fully without any reservation. And yet at the same time, he is, he is man. And then I love this about the creed. Um, look at how it joins two things together here. By whom all things were made, and who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. And then we enter into the narrative of the son's, a sort of diminutive narrative of the son's life. Um, Jesus Christ, the supremacy and power of that name and that person, was the being by which God himself in his own triune life both brings the world into existence and he's the means by which he will redeem that self-same world. That's the... That's the grand mystery that I think we have in the scriptures as we're, as we're pressed um, to think about that particular relationship between the Father and the Son. Why is this important? Again, for two reasons, and then I'll stop. Two reasons. Number one, it shows us again the internal pressure of the Bible on these, on these Trinitarian formulations. And number two, it tells us that Trinitarian doctrine, even though it's, I realize it's complicated and it's been the source of continued Christian reflection and angst to this day. Um, but Trinitarian reflection and theology is about the salvation of our souls. Think about this. The eternal God in his own eternal life of inner communion made a decision with the singularity of that eternal will to take on human flesh to redeem the world that he had not even created before. Now, I realize that this presses us philosophically when it comes to time and our engagement and experience of it. But can I just read you um, uh, Ephesians chapter 1? This is what I really kind of want to spend more time here. But Ephesians 1, and then I'll stop. Here's what Paul says in verse 11. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works everything out in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And this is what uh, Paul says before this, up in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Do you hear that? Kind of, I mean, it sounds mystical, this language, but it's and it is. But at the same time, it's so very concrete for Paul. Um, you are participating right now in the very divine life of God Himself in the humanity of the Son who has been absorbed, that humanity has been absorbed eternally into the very life of God. You experience all spiritual blessings because of that. I mean, it's, it's profound what Paul's saying here. Why could we say that? Because he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. I mean, what Paul's doing here is he's kind of pulling back the curtains of time and even space and letting you know that within the eternal life of God himself, 
that redemption was a part of the plan of God's own movement toward the creation of the world. He, I mean, just think about and I, and I realize that somebody asked me this question this week. I don't even want to start talking about election. I mean, these are election and predestination. I mean, I, I, I frankly believe in all of them, but I realize they're complicated doctrines. But here's the irony of the, of the complication of those doctrines. Um, they, they're, they're not meant... Well, how should I say? Maybe they are. I don't know. But part of their pastoral function is to be an encouragement to us. In other words, for all, for all the angst that particular theological question has caused in the life of Christ church, I think the intention that Paul's wanting to leave us with here is this should be an enormous comfort to you. Um, if you are in Christ and you, your mind and heart have been opened to believe in Him by faith, which you know is nothing you generated on your own, if all that's true, then that's true because He's had you in mind in His Son before the very foundations of the world. And I think that's meant to bring us comfort um, as we move uh, through this world together. So all to say, um, Trinitarian doctrine is very practical in this sense. That our salvation is at the central concern of what, what at least the creed itself, is expressing about God's own triune being. Okay, what time do we have? Oh, shoot. Well, one question. Yes, ma'am. Two questions. Just in case we don't get to it, when it says on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead, what does that mean? Someone asked that. I, I need to look into that more. Okay. Um, because I'm sure there's, and I have a, I have an edition at, at back home that has a sort of Latin and Greek version of that. I'll need to look at what's what's going on there. Because um, I don't, I mean, I to get that, I don't know if there's a kind of archetype, ectype thing going on here. I, I don't, I don't think so. I, I, I imagine it's a pretty low flying answer to that question. But let, let me look into that. Okay. Kristen. I really appreciated what you had to say today. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, it's um, one last thing because it's sort of spurred a thought for me. I've been reading St. Augustine this past week on Psalm 1. Um, and it's been fascinating. To, for, th- Psalm 1, right? How blessed is the person that does not uh, walk, stand, sit with the wicked, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. And in the law of the Lord, they meditate day and night, and they'll be like a tree. You know what Augustine says? Augustine sees Psalm 1 and 2. First and foremost, as a conversation between the Son and the Father. Because who really can you say, like with Psalm 1, that their delight, you know, when it says day and night, that's a, that's a technical sort of term, merism there. It's covering the sum total of all, of all of your existence. From morning to evening, they delight, they meditate. <laughs> who could, who, Augustine says, who could that be said of? 
Again, it gets to this the importance of the perfect creatureliness of Jesus on our behalf. And you see that here, I think, with the fact that that's not an afterthought in God's life. It's central to how we understand God's being in life. And that's, that's pastorally rich, I think. I think you're right, Chris. It's very helpful. Okay, did we pray? No. Lord, bless these dear friends. Um, and thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, for the legacy of your church that has get, given us these gifts of creedal formulations to help us, Lord, not sort of sit back on our laurels, um, but to be unleashed uh, to engage your living word um, for the sake of uh, having a live encounter and being conformed and transformed with what we find there in your Son. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.